0: Welcome to the Shelf Podcast, the show about toys, why we like them, and their connection to bigger topics. I'm your co-host Sugu, and tonight we're going to talk about whether art is meaningless.
1: I'm your co-host Darby, and we're going to talk about the intent of intent. <laughs> Before we begin, by way of introduction, I'm Darby Harn, the author of the novels Ever the Hero and A Country of Eternal Light. I'm a senior writer for Screen Rant. I collect comic books, Star Wars toys, and things I really should not be buying.
0: (laughs) And I'm Sugu, your co-host. I work in IT and education, and I'm also passionate about writing and story. You can find some of my travel writings on allaboutjapan.com, where I've written various articles about my life and perspectives in Japan. I collect mostly transformers, but I've recently started collecting Marvel legends figures and die cast cars, such as hot wheels. Since living in Japan, I've developed an interest in tabletop gaming. So I also have a wide collection of board games tonight. We're going to answer the age old question. What is art? For generations, people have tried to define and understand art. And tonight, we're going to answer that question.
1: Because we know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we're not only do we know the answer, we're going to do it in an hour. Easy. Yep. No sweat. <laughs> so this whole thing started from uh, a YouTube video from Philosophy Tube, um, who originally the title was something like, uh, I don't think anyone can actually get art. But then she changed it. And I know that because it was in my watch later playlist and then it was a a different name. When I refreshed the playlist, I was very confused, but, um, it's right now called is art meaningless. Yeah. So that's the video we'll link to it in the description. Um, Darby, why don't you uh, kick us off? What, tell us about the video and your thoughts. Um, yeah, let's
1: talk about the video. The The video is a really great video uh, from Abigail, as always, uh, about philosophy, but this one is more about art and talking about what the meaning of art, the intent, most importantly, of the author, or the artist. And um, I thought it was interesting I, in any case, because one thing people uh, listeners probably heard me talk about on the pod is I'm a Big believer in intent. Um, And so I found this one really interesting because I think she presents a pretty broad sort of in 37 minutes uh, presents a pretty holistic case for the different sides of this sort of debate. So you have on one side sort of the critical intellectual desire for um, to establish intent on the part of the artist and then you have famously infamously, question mark, uh, Roland Barthes, Death of the Author, which has, uh, I feel like itself, uh, become subject to debate on its intent. She also Um, said Lindsay Ellis Death of the Author author, author as well. Yeah, so so Lindsay Ellis did um, uh, her video, I think a couple years ago now, about Death of the Author, which I think, if I remember correctly, um, had in part large measure to do with J.K. Rowling. In um, the relationship with the audience and Rowling, and I think that's something we can talk about tonight because I think there's a way that we, I think so. I find my it's been a couple of years, but I one thing I, I think will unpack a lot of this uh, is um, I think the way that people approach death of the author in the main at the moment is as a way to separate the work from an author or artist who is considered problematic. Uh, exhibit one, uh J.K. Rowling, who has created obviously Harry Potter, um, and who is um culturally uh toxic at the moment, um, given her uh views, beliefs, and practical action um, when it comes to trans people. Um so does harry potter still have value what is the merit of harry potter uh you have this conversation in every aspect of the. So there, you know every day there's another story about a problematic creator an actor a musician a director um things like that michael jackson um if you know several years ago there you know a lot of allegations about his behavior does his music still have value things like that I don't that, that wasn't Bart's intent with Death of the Author and I don't know that the way that people use Death of the Author was Bar Bart's intent. But um we can maybe unpack all of that. And then where Abigail was ultimately going with it is, is what 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 is intent and and does it matter? Does it matter? And then also, um is it is it binary? Is it either or? And one of the things I enjoyed most about the video is that um, Abigail's videos are always educational, they're always informative, they're always academic, they're also to me almost always performance art. Sure. And she's an actress and a big part of her her videos and a big part of her persona is dressing up and this one she I think she gets uh, kudos to the (laughs) whatever production budget she has. She goes the extra mile here with the makeup and the clothes and all that, and has that other stuff. She every single and Pablo Picasso sort of,
0: painting all at the same time. <laughs> which was
1: great. And there is artistic intent in what she does in this video. This is a piece of art, this video itself. And she does a very interesting thing where she's having a conversation within the video that isn't what is, is art meaningless? She's having an ongoing conversation vis-a-vis Pale Fire with this unnamed woman who's she has ambiguous lesbianism about that goes through the entire thing. And this piece of art, her video, is. it's art. And what is the intent? Who is she talking to? Is art always talking to someone? Spoilers, it is. Um... We'll talk about. It. I'd like to talk about all that because um, there's a lot to talk about and um, all that. but maybe before we dive in if I could real quick, um, I want to give a couple plugs, uh, a couple things going on as, as far as art. Um, so as far as uh, my books, one thing a couple of things I wanted to mention very quickly. Um, so as we record this uh, august twenty seventh, September 1st um, folks if you're interested if you have a netgalley account um, You will be able to download ever the hero by me yours truly um, book one of the eververse Um, uh, If you're a reviewer blogger youtuber librarian um, This is your opportunity to download download the book for free on netgalley Leave a review uh, be most appreciated Um, and I'm I'm grateful for the um, Science Fiction Writers Association for giving me the opportunity to make the book available on Galley in September. And then also last year, folks may remember that I had mentioned that *Ever the Hero* had been nominated for the um, the uh, self-published science fiction contest. Did not win last year. Uh, Al Hess, though. Uh, my friend, and who does the cover for Ever the Hero and all my books, uh, was a uh, semi finalist. Um, Ever the Hero has been nominated again for <laughs> science fiction self publishing number hey, two.
0: Congratulations.
1: So um, I appreciate um, the folks who. Um, I appreciate that. Um, the book is once again also. Uh, nominated for the best cover uh, in the cover contest aspect of the contest, overall contest, and that begins today, August 27th. I'll include a link for folks can vote on it. I'd appreciate that also, not for me, that's really for Al, Um, and Al's amazing art, and um, uh, a lot of great covers, a lot of great books involved again, Um, so I'm very... Happy that the book was chosen again, and I had a lot of uh, very nice people reach out to me um, to s- express their happiness that the book is uh, back in the mix. So I appreciate all of that very much,
0: and I just wanted to plug those very quickly before. Yeah, we absolutely! Move on. Congratulations. Um, is there anything that we need to do? Like, can we vote like uh, the last time when your covers were
1: you? Yeah. 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 Uh, it, yeah. It, uh, for the cover contest, you can vote. So yeah. So, um, thank you for pointing that out. Cause I don't think I mentioned that. So the cover contest is something folks can vote on the book itself is part of the judging process, um, um, within the contest. And, and, um, I will not be paying any attention to that part of it. That's nothing to do with me. I, I, you know, uh hopefully people enjoy the book um that's all i can hope for but the but the cover um yes if you want to vote you can uh i i would appreciate it especially for al um because it is a great cover and um so yeah and there's a lot of great covers so yeah we'll include a link and um i don't know how long that runs that that part of the contest but uh the we will include the details but yeah
0: okay And last question for people who may not know, maybe it's irrelevant, I'm not sure, but what is NetGalley?
1: So NetGalley is um, a service in which you can, um, for reviewers and uh, folks who are looking at prospective books, um, to to get a hold of uh, galleys. Uh, Galleys are uh, advanced reader copies of uh, novels um, uh, digitally to review, to see if they want to get it for their library, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's a great service. It's a great opportunity for books to, um, to get found, especially for folks like me who are independently published. Um, so Ever the Hero has been out for a minute. But uh, this is a great opportunity. And I, it, um, it speaks, um, speaks to the life of the book and um the the i i i've mentioned i think on the pod somewhere before um that uh, i i when i i pub the book came out in january of 2020 and i i expected to sell maybe five copies and then i would just go on with my hermit ways um uh the the book continues to have life um she always seems to do well when she gets in front of people I would love for more people to find the book and I I would love for people to discover the book and kit and um, the world and uh, this is a great opportunity for the book and I hope that people do and and because the biggest uh, a big thing um, for especially folks in my position who I don't have a marketing budget is uh, reviews and awareness and um, uh so the more reviews there are, the there's this sort of a snowball effect um that leads to um uh just more people seeing the book, more eyeballs, etc. So I mean that's a huge opportunity um for uh it's, it's, you know certainly mid list authors and then folks like myself who are on no list. Um so so yeah, but net galley service that's out there it's used by um traditionally published traditional publishers independent authors alike and it, it's an opportunity for folks who big book booktube people who devour books um uh to, to get a hold of books early or in my case late uh but to find books and get them and and um and uh and, and share if they want if they're inclined if they enjoy them so and last thing, real quick, um, if we're talking about devouring books, uh, uh, I'm biased, but uh, Sun Yi Dean, the Book Eater's Sunday Times bestseller. Oh, wow. Uh, is available now. Yeah, uh, available now in uh, everywhere, I, I believe. I still now. have
0: not gotten my copy. Oh, okay, <laughs> he doesn't have it yet,
1: but it is otherwise available everywhere. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, again, biased. Uh, Sunny is a, a very, very good friend of mine. And um, so if you guys are into books, you're out there listening, you're looking for a great book, uh, check it out with the Book Eaters. Sunny yeah, Dean.
0: I pre-ordered it, and I got an email saying, we don't know when it'll come to your doorstep. We'll email you when, when it does. Jeez. Like, uh, well, I don't need any email Jeez. then. <laughs> then it's at my doorstep, but all right fair enough i'll i'll take what i can get at this point point. Absolutely. and i think i bought i bought the british edition i think
1: yeah the, there's a couple of different editions so published by tour in the states harper voyager in the uk and uh different covers and there is also a, for folks who do loot crate uh, which i think is mainly in europe um if you uh i don't know about elsewhere uh, there is that is a different cover and a different edition as well, and that is very cool. I've seen that the loot crate edition; it's very, very cool. I want it myself. I'm gonna have to uh, pull some strings to get it. I think it's not available in the states. So, um yeah, check check it out. Uh, and can't recommend it enough. Very happy, very happy for her. Very much deserves yep, success.
0: Absolutely. When I get it, I. Th- I think it'll be in my 2023 reading queue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've got all these art projects coming up. Time to uh, get into it and define what art is. I think before we get really started, one thing I want to talk about with Philosophy Tube, or one thing I wanted to say about Philosophy Tube's video, at least to maybe give us some structure, is that she has, I think, three parts four parts uh the first one is the artist intention the second one is the feeling the right emotions and then the third one is the market for it which i want to get into <laughs> yeah and the fourth part is the art and the audience which i think is her kind of conclusion denouement moment in there yeah so yeah, yeah th- those are the four sections of her video um Where do you want to start? The artist intention?
1: Yeah, I think this was the whole video is fascinating. This is probably the one that is probably most fascinating to me as a writer, as an artist. Um, Because you and I came up through uh, uh, writing workshops, which uh, even in their structure, um, were allergic to authorial Mm -hmm. intent. And which is odd, given you're in a group of writers (laughs) and authors. Uh, but I'm a big believer in intent and I am um, I'm a I'm also a a, a reader and I'm a and I'm an intellectual I don't I don't know that I'd call myself an academic but one thing uh, I've been a guest on other podcasts where we're talking about you know comic books and and shows and things like that and we're, we often then talk about the artist and the intent and the the sort of the the um, the Barthian sort of death of the author philosophy is very pervasive in academia and culture now uh, for reasons I kind of alluded to earlier. And so I've, I've always found that interesting, I guess, is maybe the not the best way to put it. But I suppose as an author, I am biased as far as intent. But but as a reader, I've always been very interested in intent and trying to understand because I was trying to one, I was lo- trying to learn how to write, and I, I was also trying to learn how these creators that I I uh, influenced me and that I appreciate so much. I wanted to know what what led into what inspired Chris Claremont to be as bold and consistent as he was in representing lgbtq themes in his work in the 1980s in the x-men what led what what inspired star wars what was lucas's intent with star wars especially now as uh, 40 years plus on we argue about what star wars means tolkien etc um and so it's important to me as a reader to understand what their intent is it's important to me as a writer that um that what my intention is and that people have some awareness. And so I appreciate reviews I get of the books that seem from folks, certainly who get it, quote unquote, get it, you know, who understand. And so I'm, I'm all, and I'm also under, perfectly aware that part of the game is that you have no control over the way that people react to your book or to your art. And a lot of what happens with the novel is in fiction in general is what happens between a reader's ears, and so you there's there's this alchemy which I think is ultimately what she is talking about in the video, is that it's not binary, it's not the author's intent doesn't matter, or the author's intent is the only thing that matters, it's it's both, and that's what ha- that it's that thing that happens, it's that collision between. What did Darby intend when he wrote Ever the Hero? And then what did X person take away from it when they read it? Because they're bringing their their own points of view, they're bringing their own life experience, they're bringing their own biases, they're bringing their own uh, limits uh, into the equation. And are they then inspired themselves to find out what did Darby mean? Can I find it? Um, Does it matter? How much does it matter? Why? (laughs) <laughs> you know that type of a thing and I'm always I'm always fascinated by that sort of engagement between the writer and the reader and certainly the art and the artist and and the, the viewer the consumer um, and she makes fantastic use of several examples here Pale Fire is a fantastic example um, the Nabokov book Um of getting at what what does it mean and can you be wrong in your interpretation what's interpretation so i'm sort of spiraling here because there's a lot that goes into the video but um yeah that's i i that's my thing and i appreciated her ultimate take which is i, I think she values intent and um I, I think ultimately she comes down on again this sort of holistic sort of approach
0: yeah um for me i kind of like I hate, I hate to say this because it's uh, it sounds like a cop-out answer, but I think it's a false dichotomy. I think it's a false binary. Like, like you said, I don't think it's either the artist has intent or you ignore it. I think, I think that's weird, and I think that is meant to start up barroom brawls, in, especially in Ireland, as opposed to actually trying to have a discussion. Um, because in in my opinion the author the authorial intent is it's just a layer of understanding right like imagine if you knew nothing about James Joyce and you read the Ulysses like that that book reads very differently if you know nothing about James Joyce's life his background and his intent like period it just it doesn't in my opinion it doesn't really work as a novel unless you know the context unless you know the what James Joyce is trying to get to to read that and, and once you understand that then it becomes a huge masterpiece of a novel right but like i it just would it would be so arbitrary um along those lines though you know it's to to me It ultimately boils down to the same thing. Art is communication. Whatever medium you're creating in, you are communicating to an audience. Um, So, like for example, in my own professional world, when I'm when I'm teaching, when I'm standing at the front of the classroom, my intent is for the students to learn, right? Like that's that's obvious, but. If I just stand up there and lecture at them, that's not really communicating. I'm not taking into account anything that they're, any way that they might interpret it. I'm just one one way, one direction. So as a teacher, you have to kind of adjust and adapt and kind of read your audience, so to speak. But that's teaching. That's not creating an art because creating art is still necessarily, by necessity one way right like you write a book and that's it like it's not a dialogue with the audience That that's the book it's one way but it still is communication
1: is it a dialogue is it a dialogue
0: well I mean the book is the thing... book right like there is no Ooh. dialogue with that book now there's feedback and there's reviews I... sure but the the right. book itself doesn't change
1: well, let me let me challenge okay. that a little bit to sort of one thing that she was talking about where she was talking about in the video the concept of the author's intent changing or evolving. And so she was talking about this and specifically with her play that she is working on now and is going to stage um, soon. Um, but um, this is true. Uh, authorial intent changes and it changes in the course of a novel Uh, It certainly changes uh, in the course of, like, a series. And so if you think of something like Harry Potter um, in the macro, where um, that took place over at least 10 years and would have been subject to, uh, obviously, the, the huge cultural response that it got. Or you think of something, obviously, much smaller scale, so, like, with the Eververse series, and then so with my own books in which um the intent does evolve and does change and it is a dialogue because people react to some things people react to or just you you react to the book yourself and to sort of, and there are things that you become sort of dissatisfied with or you're no longer interested in or people bounce off this or that and so or they really engage in this or that they really like that part or they really don't like that or whatever and so that contributes because it's an on it's an ongoing art project that's taking place in the public space the dialogue exists between the author and the reader and the intent changes due to several factors which include just your own evolution as an artist and maybe the where where you started where you are now the moment and then also maybe audience input sort of reader input so that sort of possibly changes well, or influences Well, this, this or raises that. then
0: an interesting question and an interesting point. Cuz I think we're we're kind of talking yeah. about two different things. In your case, let, let's talk about your case because it's a little bit easier to kind of pick apart. The Eververse sure absolutely has an element of dialogue to it because you're you're writing it, you're taking feedback, you're reacting to it, you're adjusting as you're learning and growing and as you're understanding some other themes within the book the that's changing what you originally planned absolutely i agree the eververse is that's that has a dialogue element to it but ever the hero book one that's fixed that's that is what it is and with the what the question that raises is my copy of Ever the Hero isn't going to be changed. I got it in the physical mail. It is a physical book with pages that I have to pick up and it's in my it's in my shelf now. Um just there, right? It's never going to change. So even if there's a lot okay. of feedback and you decide to go in and change some of the some of the wording, some of the themes, Let's say you want to go back in and really develop the autism part in ever the hero. I'm never going to have that. My version is never going to see any of those addendums. So here the, so the question is like, what part is the dialogue, right? Any dialogue, any feedback that happens is not going to affect my copy of that singular book.
1: So there's a lot there. Um, so the physical copy, no, but hold on to it though, because we're going to talk about value later, right? <laughs> um, so the um, I would say there is uh, the book is not static. So the physical copy is um, it's locked in its its moment. Um, the text is not so the text is living so what do I mean by that Um, the dot because it's part of a series and the series is evolving and growing and changing and the interior dynamics are the book the relationship between the reader and that first book are changing too so what's Darby's what's Darby's intent with the eververse can people can people see it now probably some people see it now But I know as the author that the meaning, the intent of the Eververse will not become clear to the reader until the last book, and indeed the last line. So there are things that are happening in all of these books, which right now where they are, so we're four books, three books in, and then the story collection. There are things that are not clear yet and that won't start. The architecture of this will not start to become clear until we get into into the next couple books. But, the, but and there are things that are happening. So I'm writing book five now. There are things that happen in book five, probably frustrates some readers. That will not become the meaning of that. The purpose of that will not become clear until the last line. So I know that now. Well, if that so the last line is years away, and that backwards effect real quick that backwards impact of that will not only have on this series but the first book as well and that will change the that will change the meaning the intent of that book in the minds of some it
0: reminds me actually of JK Rowling (laughs) we're going to talk about her later but it reminds me of the Harry Potter uh, world where the story like my opinion has always been that the story of Harry Potter and all that doesn't really get started until The Prisoner of Azkaban. That the first two books are, yeah, that's true. They're stories. I'm I'm not gonna say that, but they're not really part of the bigger story. They're kind of they do a lot of work intro introducing concepts, introducing the world, world building, all of that. But the story itself. Really gets kicked off in in book three, and that's kind of mm-hmm. what you're, you're you're talking about. Eververse reminds me of, which is that uh, book yeah. five is where, or book four or five is where your story really kind of kicks into gear.
1: I well, I wouldn't say the story. So there's a couple different layers to it. Not not to make this about ever the hero, but the the macro story which we have talked about a little bit elsewhere on the pod. Um, only starts to come into shape so so maybe let me back up people are like what are you guys talking about so the, the eververse is nine books and there will be i think a couple story collections interspersed in that but it's it's going to be nine novels and so i have a rough general idea of the shape of this and i it's a sto- it's a series of nine Um, novels that each tell an individual story that focus mostly on individual different characters but they all tell a macro story the macro story does not manifest become manifest until book three and book five for people who are really interested in that is is where that really starts to come into shape um and some of the the hammers start to fall in terms of the 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 macro plot well, one thing I've had people ask me now is they're like, oh, I thought this was about Kit, so ever the hero. But then the next couple books here, book two is about Valene, book three is about Abby, book four is about the interdictor, are all about these complicated characters who all they are all problematic in, in some way, um, some more so than others. Why, why I thought this was about Kit. The intent is not clear yet. The shape isn't obvious yet. You're not there yet. It will start to become, I think, as you get into book five, not no spoilers for me to say that book five, the subject is a kit, again, as it was in book one. The dimension of this starts to take shape. And then my intent, I think, finally, you start to see, what is my interest in these other characters who, in Abby's case, or certainly the interdictor's case, are um, problematic characters? They're not like, how can you build a book around, we like kit, it's nice. Kit's heroic. Why are we interested in Abby or the Interdictor? Why is the story interested in these people? Why? What is the? Oh, what? Why? We're going back to Kid? Is that arbitrary? No. What? So what? What does that mean for the back half then? So books six through nine. Um, who are those books going to be about? What is? So some of. The, so this stuff doesn't take shape until, you know, until you get into the you until you get into it and that that's a challenge with any series of any stripe novels comic books whatever because the dimension you don't you're not sure you're in the moment you're you're reacting to it in the moment and so because you are so you know i've had people tell me like you know like i thought this was going to be about kit i, I and then in between comes out that's the story collection that's all about kit and then there's a sense oh it is about kit it, it is about kit but So why why are you doing this daisy chain of other characters? Well,
0: so to me, actually, another question is raised, which is,
1: yeah,
0: if the authorial, if the authorial intent doesn't become uh, visible or obvious until book five, or if the total macro story isn't understood until the last line why should the audience invest in getting to that point?
1: Why wouldn't they?
0: I mean, because that's the the point about authorial intent, right? Like coming back to philosophy tube, why should an audience any audience member invest in, in receiving the art without the authorial intent kind of there why wait because that because as she says
1: if all you want is a summary if you just want my my the bullet my points, points bulleted out right for for digestion as she says i'm not going to do that there's a famous quote uh about if you want to send a message uh send it western union um I'm creating art and the art isn't done until mm-hmm. it's done it's the same reason why should you finish a book um, you know every once in a while you'll see there's a big sort of in science fiction and fantasy there's a lot of people who wait till a series is finished uh, to, to read it because for various reasons one of which is these a lot of these series uh, Game of Thrones are not finished over 20 years And they have no prospect of being finished and people are like i'm not going to get burned again i understand it it's negative for authors because authors need you if you love authors if you support authors you need to support them right because especially for traditionally published folks because if you don't buy that second book there's not gonna be a third book right right? so think about that as you're thinking as you approach that but the, the the series the work the eververse um isn't done until it's done and so if you're invested in the story then you you'll want to see it through and if you care about what it means and especially for kit as you come up to that last line and all of these different pieces are going to you know um hopefully lock into place it's very far away um you know, for me personally, as far as the writing of, I'm writing book five now. I'm not at book nine, but but I know what, I know what the final moment of book nine is. And I know how that plays, um, I know how that cascades through the series. Um, but they will, that will not become obvious until the final moment. And uh, then at this future date will, I think, be of probably debate amongst readers as to what it means. Um, If people are if anyone has any care whatsoever now if you're looking for clues there are clues throughout the book all the books right now um as to what this is um and how this will manifest and if you're a really close reader if you're really astute reader you you probably have an idea but that's for later and that's then and then that's where the real debate what abigail was talking about really begins is what a darby mean or what did any author mean versus the the barth um sort of thing and she says real quick while i'm thinking about it um when she's talking about Foucault, um this idea that that art isn't like architecture architecture is this thing you build it it is what it is i disagree with yeah. that a little bit because just dis- given yeah, what we're yeah. talking I, about i didn't really so take i'm, I'm that building idea I, I, yeah so i'm building in this series is architectonic thing which is is subject to interpretation right but so so is by the way the empire mm-hmm. state building the empire state building is what it is it's also apply there are various meanings to it that can or be the applied flat iron building. That, ha, that go far beyond the fact right that that go far beyond what they what they actually do in terms of their their physical function right. and purpose
0: yeah absolutely and i i so in my opinion uh Art is, art is in a lot more places than I think Abigail references or talks about or maybe even intends. Um, she's talking mainly about visual art and then the- theatrical art. Those are her areas that she's mainly talking about. Um, but architects, they they do art as well. I mean, there's a reason that People view architecture as art sometimes, you know, you don't go to the ruins to look at ruins, you go to ruins to appreciate the art in them. So it's, it's not just that simple of this is not art.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I've had this debate about there, there's great artistic value in architecture and what those things mean to, to people are often profound. I've had this conversation about one world trade center in new york city the new building um, the building to me represents as it does to a lot of people a lot of different things the building also takes on different dimensions as you approach it because of the way that it was designed and so from a distance it looks one way and then as you come up to it it has this wonderful uh, i won't give a detailed explanation of it, but as you come up to it, it, the the building from the side appears to go to this sort of pyramid-like point that is completely different from the actual reality of the top of the building, which the top of the building deliberately echoes the top of the original World, T- World Trade Center. Um, that has profound meanings to different people, and I, I've actually had arguments <laughs> with folks uh, about what it means and does it mean anything it's just a building and a lot of people don't like the building because they feel like it's just another building well it's not just another building is it it's it's one of the most <laughs> important buildings culturally in the right. united states so the right so that just to the point there i is architecture unartistic null no? so i kind of reject that um and I don't think she was endorsing that. I, th- I think she was using that as a, as a, as she often does in this video and throughout, a question, questioning the thing. What, it, what does it mean? And then, you know, in the terms of Pale Fire, which is very the Nabokov novel, very structured and very architectonic, mm-hmm. and is all about entering a space that you then get trapped in. What, what are you talking about? Wh- what are these? What are these notes, it's Charles? What is Charles talking about? Does he even have... Is this all in his head? It's all in his head. He has no idea. Do you have an idea? What does it all mean? Right? Novels, especially, are architectonic. Mm-hmm. They can be. They can not sure. be. Um, and they're very, they're very similar to physical spaces. And I love novels that you get into and you're like, wait a minute, how do I get out of this? What that The way back is not the way... that you thought and so i love that and i love especially texts like lord of the rings or stuff like that that which are massive and reveal themselves reveal their interiority decades later or shakespeare which centuries later where you're like what light through yonder window breaks or i I just massacred that line but um that line that that line meant something Entirely different in the moment the way it was staged because it was staged in on in London In the late 1500s and there was no window It was it was a slat. It was a I doubt it was even cardboard. God knows what it was Um, a slat that the audience could see very clearly and you had the window that Juliet was in Who was played by a man? And then the window of the stage right that that they, they were viewing it in and that that the presentation of the play had different intent and meaning than what we take it mm-hmm. now for a play for a play that is among the foundational texts in western literature things like that How, what's the presentation you mentioned you know your your copy of ever the hero is your copy of ever their hero it's it's locked it's in also time
0: unsigned by you but the, No, moving on.
1: (laughs) Right. Uh, It's it's evidence only of its moment, and so like all these texts that get um, the Hobbit by Tolkien was subsequently revised and altered by him, Mm -hmm. altered the meaning. George Lucas, Star Um, Wars. The meaning. George Lucas, Star Wars. The meaning changes. Uh, J.K. Rowling simply saying that Dumbledore was gay uh without any textual evidence or support uh changes the meaning um we're gonna take a quick break to let you know about some exciting developments on the podcast first of all thank you for listening we hope you're enjoying it uh if you like our content and you want more of it you can subscribe to our channel and get additional conversations between sugu and i so stick around after the episode for a quick sample of what you could get.
0: if you want to give us any feedback feel free to let us know your thoughts and opinions at Shelfwarmers at gmail.com or on Twitter at Shelfwarmers. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show.
1: So the, it, it's an evolving thing; it's a changing thing. If your work is lucky enough to enter the cultural conversation and have the sustainability of some of these things that we're talking about, it by, by its nature it'll take on different meanings, and and the intent then becomes lost. What what it was Lucas's intent with Star Wars? It becomes in a debate he's engaged in with his own fandom. Um, we've talked. A fair bit on the pod about Superman and the what is the intent and purpose and value of Superman, especially as it relates to the people who have artistic custody of him right now, <laughs> um who do not seem to understand uh, some of those things. So all it, it, but it's it's an ongoing debate, and because they're so pervasive in the culture and culture is so massive, there are all these different and people are individuals that you come from it from all these individual places and there are so many things bound up in it something like star wars like not only do they have um practical value but they have these are franchises which are worth billions of dollars that generate ancillary products which are worth billions of dollars and you may yourself own elements of it piece action figures or art or something that are worth thousands of dollars. But they have to you personally enormous incalculable personal value. You know, Star Wars is fucking everything, right? Um, it's philosophy, it's your point of view, it's who you are. I'm a Star Wars baby. Um I'm part of a I'm part of a generation in which my entire my entire our current entire cultural landscape was built by this movie I saw when I was three years old, right? Um And so, my perspective on that is dramatically different from someone who is three years old right now. So, um, all of those things matter. And then when Barth comes along and he's like, well, it doesn't matter what George Lucas meant, I disagree fundamentally with that. Um, I disagree fundamentally with the concept of death of the author. I do, personally. Shocked. I know you guys are shocked because.
0: Well, that brings up something else that I wanted to ask because you had mentioned that. Uh, both off the podcast and very, very quickly in the beginning, um, that there are now two different definitions of death of the author that's being used. One is the way that I think Lindsay Ellis was using it, and the one that... um, No, sorry, not Lindsay Ellis. Let's Let's just keep it here. So one death of the author is in Philosophy Tube, and one death of the author is the original. What are the two definitions?
1: So to my mind, so um, what Barth intended with Death of the Author is slightly different than how people are applying it at the moment. I think the way that most people are applying it is trying to divest a work from an author due to their problematic nature. Let's take Rowling. So uh, Abigail doesn't reference Rowling directly uh, in her video. But she has elsewhere in her videos and in her public statements. Rowling is a major cultural figure uh, due to Harry Potter. And Harry Potter is one of the seismic architectural aspects of modern uh, pop culture. Rowling is a transphobe. And it, it, it goes beyond just the fact that she, you know, maybe because she's her you know she's she's an author she's just a person she has her own beliefs and things that don't you don't usually come in contact with because you don't have a relationship with her you don't know her most authors are uh, well pre-social media most authors are, are sort of invisible which allows Roland Barst to say what he said Rowling is a an avowed and unabashed transphobe She's deeply problematic now, the question becomes, what does that mean for Harry Potter? Because this Harry Potter is so beloved by so many tens of millions of people around the world. Numerous books, right, uh, movies, Translations. you name it, Trans, all of it. And it, it, I think it was a play as well. Uh, there was a play, I should say. What does that mean for the work? I think people a lot of times when we're talking about death of the author, we're talking about, I can still enjoy the work because the author is meaningless in the text. I personally, I don't know about that. I don't know. And I don't know if that's a question for me. Like when I'm, cause when I'm thinking about all these things that we're talking about, I am thinking about the author and maybe some of these people are problematic, right? Maybe these people have personal issues. Is it, appropriate to just cut it off and say this person is nothing or should i consider the fact what does rowling's homophobia and transphobia say about not her that's self-evident what does it say about her work should i ignore it and say no the work is holistic and the work is immune to her political views i don't think i can say that I have to look at it because she she, said, she did something extraordinary. She said, ex post facto, Dumbledore is gay with no textual support. Why, why that? And then her uh, public uh, crusade against uh, trans people, trans men and women. I have to consider that because she used her cultural capital to state that one of the most popular characters in modern culture Dumbledore was gay she spent some of her cultural money on that and paid a a, a, I'm gonna guess a small cultural price for it I can't divorce those things I have to consider all that and I have to look back at her work and I look back at her work I'm not a particularly a Harry Potter fan I've read the books um I think I think they're good books she tells she tells a good story. The books are, you start looking at them, you start peeling at them that there are, I would say, problems in the book, there are things in the book that are not great. There are things in the book that maybe um, reveal her sort of thinking on things and and things like that as, as is inevitably the case. Am I as the reader, projecting that on the work because I know about her public statements maybe right how can i be sure could i be wrong as abigail talks about in pale fire how do we know that charles is wrong in pale fire how do you know that you the reader is wrong about this work can you be wrong about a work can you can you can you watch a movie or read a book and be fundamentally wrong about what that book or movie was talking about
0: well to that i mean this is <laughs> This is what high school English students and English teachers are constantly arguing <laughs> and bickering about with each other. But like her initial, her initial intro conundrum, I actually disagree with um, where she said if.
1: Are you talking about Abigail?
0: Yeah, yeah. A philosophy too. where she says, like, if someone asks if I saw Dr. Strange 2 and, and what does it mean? And I give the story <laughs> yeah. of the Titanic. I've clearly gotten it wrong yes but you're not answering the question that was before you right like that question what's it about and then give the plot for titanic those are parallel things the plot of dr strange and the plot of uh, of titanic but when we're talking about authorial intent uh, that is different Uh, and i've i've been on the other side of it too like I remember I wrote in one of my writing groups uh, post-college way back in the day. uh, I wrote something, and everyone insisted that it was actually about my mother. No, it's not. I had (laughs) no thought about my mother at all when I wrote it. Well, it's subconscious for you then. No, it's not. No, it's not. I can tell you (laughs) definitively. It has nothing to do with my mother, but they were reading into my intent and rather than (laughs) art is communication, right? Rather than communicating with me and asking me, they were just telling me, no, no, this is about your mother. I'm like, first off, y'all don't know my mother. Second off, y'all don't know me and my mother. So how are you sure you're not projecting your relationship with your mother? Because, like, in my story, there is no mother. There is no maternal figure in it at all. Like, it was just a dude, if I remember correctly, it was a dude who put wings on himself and then jumped off of a building to fly. Like, that's it.
1: I I will say nothing about mothers (laughs) in my work. Um, Something I get a lot. I got a message uh, recently. Let me find it. This is in regards to A Country of Eternal Light, another one of my books. Um, I assumed you were a woman. I assumed you were Irish, a reader uh, stating that about me. Now, on one hand, that's a great compliment. But they read the book, A Country of Eternal Light, applying a perspective on it that then shifted immediately when they found out that I wasn't an Irish woman. Mm -hmm. But I get that a lot. Especially with that book, I get that constantly. Actually, most people assume I'm a woman because of my name, and then with A country of eternal light, they just assume I'm Irish. I am Irish. I'm Irish American, but not, I guess, Irish Irish. <laughs> so right, right. accent, but uh, right, but um, with A country of eternal light, I get that a lot, and I take that as uh, I take that as uh, I appreciate it because it tells me the um, the voice is strong. The book re. The voice is of The book is reads authentic and which is great. Um, but, um, but when it comes to like political things, there's a lot of very, I don't want to linger on this, but there's a lot of debate and dialogue and cultural circles now about, um, who gets, who should be writing, who you're not X person. So you shouldn't write that character. And those are conversations that we need to have that have to happen. Um, but the the default sort of setting is that people think that men can't write women, and I knew that wasn't true from a young age because um, there are male authors who can write women. And I think I can say, I write women well if I, if I don't, I don't. Um, that's obviously up to the to to the reader but um but that's the kind of commentary that i i I, I often get, but that changes immediately what peop when people become aware then of who I am, it changes immediately the reading of the text and then also what they possibly think the intent is w- what what is the intent in Maide or kit those are and those are two completely different things right um and I don't have any control over that because. People can find out what my intent is because you and I have talked about aspects of it on the pod, or I've talked about it in interviews, or I've written about it in this essay or that essay. But they can find it. But to the point of everything that we're talking about doesn't matter. And then to your to go back to your example from the workshop, which again I mentioned earlier, you and I came up through workshops, which are all in which the writer the author could not speak. Of course they didn't care whether or not it was about your mom because they're like you can't talk we had to sit there and <laughs> basically take on and so what we, i and i remember vividly because these leave deep scars you know like you know the people's just reactions to it and they could be so off the mark wrong and then other people like yes yes that is correct that is a correct interpretation and you're like no, and but you can't you can't say anything, and I never understood that. I remember talking, I remember being in Ireland at Trinity and having a conversation with folks about I, I don't understand the denial of intent. So this started for me early on. Um, and there are there are authors I know some of them who don't believe in intent and don't believe in that it matters. And that pr- perspective is lost immediately in the translation from uh, artist to consumer. Um, I don't believe that personally. Um, I don't think that that's true. I also think it's very complicated, as Ab- Abigail says, and I, I, you know, and I think especially in this age that we're living in, in which everything is fraught, in which art in Literature and literacy are under attack. Um, People are banning books. Um, People are are legislating books out of existence. And particular authors. It's extremely important that you value authorial intent. And it's extremely important that you value authors. When people, specifically in the States here, when they're going after authors, their work and what their work um depicts or represents uh they're going after um trans authors gay lesbian authors african-american authors jewish authors and when you're banning books like mouse a book of which there is considerable academic debate and critical debate about what that book really is it's extremely important that you value what art spiegelman says that that book is about It is extremely important that you know what that book is about. It's important that you know that that book is about the people who are trying to ban it right now. Because if you don't, it's just another book. Some Trumpian wise-ass can say, It's just about a bunch of naked cats and and mice. (laughs) And it has no value whatsoever. Banned. And you're like... Yes, that's correct. It's about a bunch of naked mice. It's extremely important that you value authorial intent. You don't have to subscribe to it. And you don't have to surrender your own response to it, right? You, you know, how do you know that you're wrong? How do you know that you have the correct interpretation? What do I think that Rowling meant? Or what do I think that Darby meant by X? You can triangulate it. You can try to figure it out. And then you can say, but what does it mean to me? So, right, when someone says, you know, I thought you were a woman. <laughs> and and so I thought I, I made this, you know, personal connection to this fictitious author who now doesn't exist. It's changed the relationship. And then... Not to, not to, I won't get into details, but, and then that may, that may lead to a question like, hypothetically, may lead to a question like, who was she? Why married? Then she takes on a dimension all her own. This woman who doesn't exist. This woman who now exists between the author and the reader. As Nabokov deliberately did in Pell Fire inserts Charles between, not just Nabokov and the reader, but John, the main character, the who's relating his story. And Charles is inserting himself. Isn't Charles the author? Isn't he writing? Isn't he changing the direction of the story? What it means in the intent? How do you know he's wrong? The unreliable narrator, insert any book or story here. Those types of things, right? I, I'm fascinated by all that, and I'm fascinated by it because I know it doesn't have simple answers. It doesn't. It's not just a clean answer, right? And it's not just a catch-all, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think anyone who tries to give a simplified answer for all of this does hasn't really given it the thought that it needs to be because, well, I don't. On the one hand, I don't think it's a simple answer. But on the other hand, I think that it's kind of pointless to ask that kind of question. Like, I don't, I don't think it's very valuable to ask whether the artist's intent is important or not. I don't think that's a very valuable question. I think the the better question is why did the author choose to write this story? Right? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't think it's. I don't, I don't think the yes, no question is important. The yes, no of whether we should or should not, uh, pay right, attention like to authority because who, who cares? Yes, you do. No, you don't. The book is still there. The, the piece of art is still there and like, it doesn't matter whether you acknowledge it or not, but a more interesting question is Why? You know, Simon Sinek has a video that's very dated now, but always start with why. Always start with context. Always start with meaning. And you know what? That's what I do when I teach. Every time I get step into the classroom, I always start with why. Why do I want my students to know this material? Right? So same thing with art. If art is communication, why? Why did jk rowling decide to write harry potter the way she did why did she put in the elements that she did why did c.s lewis write the line the witch in the wardrobe the way they like what are the choices that they made to make that book and where did those choices come from c.s lewis came from his christian past or christian upbringing analogy and whatnot that 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 informs the lion the witch in the wardrobe if you read the lion the witch in the wardrobe without knowing about c.s lewis's uh, christendom you're losing a lot of what's happening in the stories
1: yeah i uh, tolkien resisted any application of meaning i in part i think just because of his own perspective his intent was his intent, and that was it. That was it, right? Uh, his intent Lewis was to show,
0: showcase his Elvish language.
1: Yeah, but he also, to his mind, had a very clear understanding of what it was, the story was about. There was no room for interpretation, which I, th- I think the culture disagrees with <laughs> in the main. C.S. Lewis, um, his intent with lion uh, or with the narnia and uh, writ large was so obvious that tolkien was like <laughs> you have to you have to put some clothes on this you have to you know this is like the the lion's right. jesus right yeah what is, is what well, that right there full stop at you that know. point you might as well just read the source Do you, just give me a little but yeah just give them the bullet points give them the bullet points so there's there's uh, the different fundamental ways of, of looking at it. There's always debate. There's always and as these things age and they evolve and they travel different places in the culture, as the culture evolves, then these things change again. Um, you know, will the will the cultural sort of interpretation? Abigail also spends a good chunk in the video talking about interpret the value of interpretation specifically. Susan Sontag in which Susan Sontag was a was a famous enemy of interpretation. Um will the cultural interpretation of Harry Potter change over time? Yeah. Uh,
0: it's already yeah, will,
1: changed. What will, will that be it's already changing and so will that ha will that be positive or negative for Harry Potter? I don't know. I personally not as i'm not a harry potter mega fan i don't think harry potter has the sustainability that some of these other things we that talked about do.
0: this a long long time ago i think i was back in kansas city um to give you an idea how long ago how long ago it was i think it was in the middle of uh the harry potter fan fandom like the zeitgeist sure.
1: yeah early yeah, yeah early two thousands. Uh, yeah.
0: so like in the middle of that zeitgeist I was saying, I don't know if Harry Potter has, uh, sustainability. Like I, I, I really don't know that it will carry on as long as it, as, as long as it, as honestly, as long as it does. Um, and the, the, you know, I, I don't know when it's going to fade, but I can't imagine it. And now 20 years later or so it, it is fading. From the zeitgeist, people know Harry Potter, but it's it has nowhere near the um, the impact to new children that it, it used to. Yeah, I part will... of that is culture changed with with the advent of TikTok and social media. Um, kids are not reading books the way that Harry Potter brought them to. Part of it is also. this other thing apparently this new generation of children that's growing up their sense of humor is so off the world and just like random stuff happens and that's funny and rant more random and that's funny and uh people our age are going what's the humor what what's funny i don't get it None, none of this is funny but apparently that's the generational humor but like so, you know, there's all these factors to Harry Potter, in my opinion, kind of fading, but also can't ignore JK Rowling jumping on her soapbox, doubling down on her soapbox, and then tripling down on her soapbox, despite all of the pushback and all of the... um like the fans were saying that the the Harry Potter books were instrumental in accepting that they were trans so to find out that the author herself is anti trans is like i can't imagine what what level of a mind fuck that would be there's a
1: great sense of betrayal amongst Harry Potter fans who certainly grew up with it when it comes to 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 her political views. And, and I, I won't speak to all that, because like I said, I'm not I'm not a Harry Potter fan. But um, I think the great works of literature, uh, essential works can survive the problematic nature of their creators. When we think of someone like, I know they can be when you think of someone like William Shakespeare, we don't know a lot about William Shakespeare, but we can assume um, that he was a product of his time. Sure. Right? He he would have had Elizabethan values, which were not... He was artistically progressive. <laughs> he may have been the most artistically progressive person ever. But we can assume things about him that were, would have been contemporary in, in sort of his political views and his views on women and, and other people. Does that invalidate... And there are things within the text that are challenging does that invalidate um the work no i I think as a culture we've decided no that it doesn't do we need to consider it in context of the work yeah um is is rowling ever going to gain that kind of estimation
0: no but that brings me up to that's also brings up another interesting point which is uh foundation (laughs) Isaac Asimov's original books don't have a whole lot of women as central characters. Don't really have a whole lot of racial minorities as central characters. They're, right. It's very... very 60s, to be honest. But the Foundation mm-hmm. TV show updated all of that. Same story, but now you've made yeah. the uh one of the main characters now she's a black woman instead of uh another white dude so people are updating stories now with more progressive viewpoints yeah,
1: yeah sometimes to the anger of uh the audience the supposed anger of the sometimes. audience I, I, you know <laughs> uh like like the sandman right now there's a lot of anger about uh, fawning anger about, uh, the Sandman and, and casting people of color in particular roles, uh, you
0: know, in particular. Oh, I remember people didn't like Michael uh, Clark Duncan as the Kingpin. I mean, Daredevil had several other Kingpin, problems, it, but it, that was not one of them. When they announced that it was Michael Clark Duncan was, as Kingpin, I'm like, yep. Who else?
1: <laughs> he was a great, he was a great Kingpin and so people are, and so a lot of that is performative. Um, that that reaction to it, because these are folks who have not read the comic books and don't understand, and don't you know, didn't understand that within the text itself that death and dream appear as to different people in different ways, and textually appear uh, in different uh, uh, ethnicities to different people, and some people may find that problematic in itself that they a white white guy dream dream is a for all intents and purposes an eldritch god he's not a white guy he appears as a white guy he needs some he needs some sun (laughs) he needs some (laughs) he spend a day on the beach but um anyway i digress you wanted before we wrap up you
0: had mentioned earlier you wanted to talk about value i'm wondering if maybe we should save this for another episode because i think that that's a Okay. Really, because it, it goes yeah. back to nfts when she when she started up with uh uh that section my first thought is oh, the modern version of that is going to be nfts and sure enough she brought it up i'm like yep mm-hmm. so i i think yeah, there's yeah. a bigger yeah, conversation yeah. maybe we can have that as like a part two for this one yeah okay so stay okay. tuned you know we've been talking about rolling a lot especially you know Uh, LGBTQ but there's one other part in there that I think is interesting to think about um, which is that when I think it was some play that came out maybe the Cursed Child I'm not sure but something came out and Hermione was black and there is some some issue about it because of course the fans have an issue about it but J. K. Rowling's response was, Yeah, Harry, Hermione could be black, but mm-hmm. that's not clearly she did not think that Hermione was black. She did not write that. It didn't occur to her that. Because we know that because the way that she wrote it. Was not it was her intent, right? right. Her intent was Hermione is white. The fact that she said, Yeah, she could be black, that doesn't you know, that doesn't change anything well combine that with Dumbledore being gay her announcement that Dumbledore is gay you asked earlier what was that all about I mean to me when it happened I think Harry Potter was starting to slip out of the zeitgeist and she was start trying to stay relevant and that's why she made those statements to try and keep Harry Potter in the in the news in the zeitgeist in the in the free in, in, in the minds of new new readers who could reimagine these characters, but trans, that was the line that she decided to draw.
1: Yeah, I that could be, uh, which I think makes the betrayal that I was talking about a moment ago all the greater, because um, what she did in that moment was to acknowledge uh, a healthy section of her audience and give them uh, an avatar in some ways. Um, that they maybe had read as gay or maybe possibly speculated on. Uh, We talked about fan fiction recently. There is an entire universe (laughs) of Harry Potter fan fiction, which has to do with the sexuality or possible sexuality of, I think generally all the characters. So this is a healthy uh, part of the fandom. And so she acknowledged that by saying, Dumbledore is gay. And then so by doing that, she extended her approval, inclusion to big chunks of her audience that were like, Harry Potter is representative. It's no longer subtextual. It's no longer speculative. This is a textual, not really, part of um, of the work. And then, and then she does her thing uh regarding her transphobia which was a violent and shocking and ugly betrayal not just of her audience but i think herself uh, you know and I, I i i don't want to spend any time on her personal um on you know what whatever but as i as i try to understand her and her behavior and her approach to her work i can only speculate and i won't do that because that's not fair to her and i would like to i would like i would hope that readers are fair to me as they speculate about my gender or uh my sexuality um um people can be wrong people can be right it you know it it what is the intent can you can your gender have intent um so you know like those kinds of things but i yeah, maybe just just to wrap up, I uh, you know, like to your point, I wanted to address your point. Um like when it comes to things like one thing I probably don't do a good job of One one sort of uh, current in the stream of of this discourse and writing is identifying everybody vis-a-vis gender and race and things like that and one thing i probably don't do a good job of in some cases is um i i don't think i identify all the white people and therefore people read them as white right and so like if there was an adaptation of uh, ever the hero in any case and people would be like you know they wanted to cast a white woman as kit well that's a non-starter that's non-negotiable if they wanted to make valine um a different Valene is white in the book she's the whitest white woman you could get um would they wanted to make her another ethnicity would that be a problem in the book or in the in the movie or the tv show i probably wouldn't really fight that battle right i, I wouldn't be i wouldn't fight it super hard i'd want it to be accurate to the story it's it matters in the story in some stories in, in bloodback in particular for reasons readers may encounter as if they read it that um that uh, that Kit is black and Abby is white um and there's a particular scene in in which um people try to to make something out of that um so those things textually do they matter in but by, by rolling saying. Well, Hermione could be black. She could be black in a different interpretation. It doesn't. What is your intent, though? And so your intent should always be clear. Um, and that's why it matters, too. For authors, it matters what your intent is. Because, you know, um, if it does, I, I, I should say also that I, when it comes to things like gender and sexuality, um, there, Abigail references a book in uh, the video. And the, I'm, the name is escaping me right now. Uh, in which it's not clear at all ever in the book that the uh, main character in the book is trans. Oh,
0: uh, how does it feel um, to be a girl? Okay.
1: Yes. Thank you. Um, it is not incumbent on you to identify, and I, 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 I went through this myself with uh, we talked about this on the pod, um, with Kit's autism, I felt compelled because of the frankly pressures that were put on me to identify kit and identify myself as autistic um in the course of doing that to enter into a community where i discovered that that is not was not necessary and it's not the norm for there's a lot of autistic authors who don't um identify their autistic characters neurodiverse characters in the text because they don't feel it's necessary and they don't feel like they need to handhold um all those things are valid and as valid as it is to say, kid is autistic, it, w- it would have been equally value f- valid for me to say, to, to not state that. Um, it's complicated. That's a whole other subject, but we won't get into here today. But it, it's, there's all these intersections and that's not just intent. There are all these mm-hmm. cultural forces, sure. social pressures, uh, Twitter, which is not reality that, um, that um, feed into some of your choices and decisions and perspectives on things. And um, and it is evolving. And just to go back to the original point as I wrap up in terms of uh, intent, what the meaning, the intent and the meaning evolving over time And Ever the Hero, um, Kit is autistic from page one. How that reads and how that plays is obviously evolving in real time. And it's evolving in ways that are out of my control um, in a large measure. And so I've made choices uh, as the series goes forward that have to do with that. That didn't reflect backwards on on the book In the book now as i stated uh, i was part of a panel of neurodiverse authors they're parts of the first book now which i sort of regret because kit is and uh, uh, kit in, has internalized a lot of ableism which is true and authentic and real and is part of my own lived experience but in the first book because of where she's at and where i was at as a writer has no mm-hmm. counter right it it's there and a lot of people read it as what it was and a lot of people didn't and there's no voice there's no moment in the first book that says you're artistic and you're perfect you're okay the way you are that mm-hmm. comes later and so if you stand back and look at the whole thing i think it will make sense because she's yeah. on a journey right but in the moment to me it i regret some of that now if i had it to do over if i could get in get a hold of your copy <laughs> and write in the margins the way that Charles
0: did in Pale Fire <laughs> I would probably write something, right. right? So, Oh, so that means I need to send it to you and then you need to at least sign it.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Write,
0: exactly. write the margins. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, stay tuned where we will probably one day, maybe not next week, but one day, uh, continue this conversation as we pick apart, uh, philosophy tubes is art meaningless. um, Cause the, the idea of art and value, I think is fascinating, especially when it comes to like, uh, the modern world, 2022 and, and all that. So the commodification of literally everything, but we're going to wrap up for today and, uh, yeah, anything you want to kind of sign off on.
1: Okay, guys. So this is Darby from the future, uh, cutting in here with a little addendum, on our conversation about intentionality in art. So we talked about um, intentionality in fiction and in the Eververse uh, during the episode. And because I'm in the middle of, or near the end actually, of revising book four, um, which will come out next year, I completely forgot that this book is probably the best example of how intent evolves Uh, as you're writing fiction and certainly in my case here a series so I thought I would just add a little bit to that um, because I completely completely um, blanked on it during our conversation Um, book four so just to set the stage um, book four comes out next year 2023 Uh, it's called Black Market Heart and The focus, the main character of this book, is a character called the Interdictor. Um, Folks, if you've read the uh, previous books in the series, will uh, know who the Interdictor is. He's more or less the villain uh, of the series to this point. Um, There's sort of different villains in every book, but he's sort of the consistent heavy. And he seems to certainly at the outset seems to play a particular kind of role. Um, he's a very um, <laughs> he's a very, very kind of guy. Uh, he's very interdictor. Uh, he's Brandian. Uh, he's objectivist uh, in his thinking. Uh, he does not believe that people uh, are entitled to help or handouts as he would call them. Or certainly the grace of gods, uh, as he styled himself, as in the in the series. And this there's a lot of a lot of uh, rhetorical and philosophical armor that encases the interdictor. In addition to the practical armor he wears, which is significant, he wears uh, uh, his. He's. I always imagined him as a so folks know the ring race from lord of the rings who are just basically these just sort of black shapes um he's basically this black amorphous wraith-like shape but that his his cloak is made from uh chain mail and actually from uh scrimnet uh which is something that is used in um modern military and he's based a little bit too on years and years ago, I, I stumbled upon this picture of, um, uh, it's at NATO. I believe it's NATO special forces. They were doing some training exercises and this guy was wearing uh, a full body armor, uh, helmet, but a, 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 over that was this veil of scrimnet armor and, um, or chain, I should say. And the, imi- the image was just so striking and, and uh, evocative that I sort of, right away, I was like, oh, this is, this is somebody. That somebody became the Interdictor. Uh, the Interdictor probably feels familiar a little bit uh, to people who are fans of the superhero genre. He probably feels like he fits in with a certain mode of hero or anti-hero who is uh, sort of in vogue in certainly modern comics and then their their um, adaptations. So um, the most common reference is Homelander from The Boys. I bristle at that for a number of reasons, but um, they're both certainly um, strong men, figuratively and literally, who um, have uh, problems uh with uh the people they're supposedly there to protect um modern interpretations screen interpretations of superman or batman uh (laughs) see everything from Zack snyder um he's sort of in that mold um and various figures in the comic books who sort of you know, whether that's if like he's just goes back as much of this does in the last 30 years to Watchmen, 35 years, um, to Watchmen and sort of the contest of philosophy about um, what is owed and to whom. And he falls decisively on, on the one side that he is obligated to nothing and no one. And so he's the focus of book four. And I won't spoil the end of book three, but that his the baton gets handed to him because of something dramatic and uh, consequential, which happens to him at the end of book three, and uh, he is in need of um, he's in need of some help, some supernatural help, and he goes seeking out this aid, which leads him into a um, a. Vast mystery and then a whole different corner of the world of the, of the Eververse That uh, really opened up in this book And I'm very happy and excited and in love with this corner of the world I'm very glad I got to it because originally that wasn't the intent um, The intent was something else completely So the origins for book 4 go back several years now um to at least the first drafts of book three which were in 2018 and i knew then that book four would be the interdictor and i looked forward to that with some anticipation and some dread because um i knew that it would be a big departure for the series and then it would also be a very big challenge for me as a writer to depict this character who i fundamentally disagree with and who is fundamentally at odds with the heroine of the series, Kit Baldwin. Um, but I also wanted to explore what makes this, what makes, what goes into the interdictor? What goes, what created the interdictor and how did he get to this point? Why is he this way? Does he have any redeeming value? Is that even something that applies to him? Um, of and and to what extent does he have a point? Does he have a point? Does he have um? Does he have a valid perspective? And I wanted to explore those those questions. A lot of this was happening during the the administration of the last president, um, and a lot of this was formulating uh, before his term ended. Um, and so the interdictor is from book one is banging this gong about um, changing the system. Um, he, he sort of advocates this philosophy that his people, the empowered, their superhumans are being persecuted and enslaved in his words by um, the powerless people without powers by Washington in particular uh, he's not wrong in some respects, he's, um, this has to do with very particular things in the book in ter- terms of something called the Empowered Registration Act, the ERA, which is binds um, when, how, where the empowered can use their powers and for whom. And that sort of forms the crux of the entire moral and ethical contest within the series. But the interdictor is constantly, from throughout the book, is challenging the system Challenging the concept of society, of community, Uh, you know, Kid Baldwin is quoting at some point in book one. She's quoting uh, she's quoting the New Testament and she's a very uh, classically um, Judeo-Christian person in terms of her values. She's a Catholic. Um, She believes um, she believes in helping your neighbor, whether you know them or not. Uh, The interdictor does not. So my concept for book 4 was that Valine who is another of the major characters and his his uh, romantic interest um is going to run for uh Congress and she does this in in the book you'll read next year hopefully you'll read next year. Uh the, she does run for Congress and she does this because the empowered have no representation in Congress and they they are from the books, the events, excuse me, in book one, they are the subject of intense uh, political legal scrutiny. So she's running for Congress, and that was going to lead in the original concept of book four um, to the interdictor being involved in what was going to be the most um, dramatic development in the series to that point, which was, and i I won't get into really the details of it because they were they were concrete and not, um, but they were it was very definite what I was what was going to happen. Um, the interdictor was going to be part of an attack. The the climax of the novel, the original concept, was going to be an attack on Washington D.C. The destruction of the American government and the installation of um who the interdictor thought should be the leader uh, of the united states and ostensibly then the free world uh, a very grim and gritty a very um i thought at the time um expected route for the, his story to go and then january 6th happened and the idea of that storyline and that that those images that I had in my head and had written down a little bit on paper sickened me, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. Um, that was happening as I was struggling also with uh, book three was in crisis for different reasons, but also kind of the same, which is that the the tenor of both books three and four. ...had become very dark and negative and despairing. And that's because I was in a bad place personally. Um, and that was carrying it, carrying over into the books. And I didn't realize it. Book three followed a different path to, I think, a, a better, brighter place... Um, ...while still acknowledging it's the shadows... Um Book four though, was just an immediate i uh, I couldn't go forward with this idea, my original intent. It just w- couldn't happen and I, and for a for a brief moment, I thought that means the book is in the interdictor my ideas about him are are, are compromised. Um, that turned out not to be the case um as i was as I sort of read as I was working out the kinks in book three this is 2021. I realized then, um, I, I, some things I had to do and nothing ever ends book three, um, opened up a door, uh, for the interdictor to walk through, um, and into book four. And that was really the opening up of, um, this doorway into magic and the supernatural. In the Eververse, which to that point had been very, very low register, just a couple things. Mainly, um, if, if folks again have read Book Two, The Judgment of Beline, something something is up um, with uh, uh, Delia Crown, Beline's uh, cousin. Uh, with her, she has this appears to be ancient Egyptian brooch. Um, something appears to be up with the straw men in breakpoint and there seems to be a little bit of supernatural fuzz to the um to the blood back uh, the blood backs the wolves um very low register but book four now breaks that door open and walks clean through to the supernatural and it really opens up the world and opens up the interdictor and um to what something i could have never anticipated and didn't plan I didn't intend, and I, I think takes the series in a new place, takes the story, takes the character. He doesn't just, I still have those questions I mentioned. Um, who is he? Why is he? What? Where does this come from? Where is it going? But the intent is different. The intent isn't to sort of embody sort of a, for him to embody sort of my, my thoughts and then condemnation of sort of the shadow that this sort of the, the, that the characters who have emerged in comic books and their related media in the last 35 years who are born from people's misreading of Watchmen or Dark Knight Returns um, and on and on. um. I wanted to explore that and I do I think <laughs> we'll see. Um I want the interdictor to be misread. I want him to misread. I want him to have a journey and be a person and an actual person, a three-dimensional person for for as as performative as he might seem. Um you know, in some ways, and certainly there are there are aspects of performance art to what the interdictor does. Certainly, his costume. I wanted to explore that, and I wanted to explore as we as we come out. Of, came out of, excuse me, January sixth into this last eighteen months. Why did this happen? What is happening? What is going to happen? What are these forces in our country? How do we steer out of the skid? Is it possible for there to be a dialogue, for there to be redemption, for there to be justice, for there to be hope? And certainly this book, book four coming up, Black Market Heart, and really the next three books, books four, five, and six, which are act two of this nine book project I've got going on they're dealing with the moment, which is this crisis and this existential dread and this fear of the future fear of the now. And I think the interdictor in a lot of ways is the perfect vehicle for that because he embodies the fear. He is the threat that we face in our, in our real world. And even more so because he has the power to actually, If he existed in the real world and possessed these values. Our, our hopes would be dashed instantly, but that's not what happens uh, in the book, and why is that? Why, why? What is this pause in the interdictor? What is this um, tangle of Vine that he gets caught up in in his ethics and morals and in his perspective? Um, where is that going, and is it easy? Is it complicated? Are there any answers, or is it just questions? So the intent changed, and, and the... That changed the intent of the book and the interdictor, really, from trying to embody these questions and thoughts I had about this subject to something beyond that, I hope, really, for the reader to decide. And then the series, because his trajectory in the series changed um, as a result of this. And I won't say anything about the series beyond book four, but it completely altered um his trajectory and, and as a consequence major elements of of where the series is going because his my original concept was vastly different and my my end, sort of end goal end game for him was very 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 different so i just wanted to add that i appreciate you guys listening to me ramble um and uh forgiving my uh my uh, memory their lack of um, I'd love to uh sue and I really uh enjoy these conversations and um would' love to have more of them so if you guys like it, let us know um you know send us a comment, uh send us an email uh tweet us, follow us all that stuff uh we appreciate you listening, thank
0: you so make sure to vote for darby's cover and um oh yeah. Yeah, that'll do it.
1: That'll do it for today, folks. Thanks again for joining us. Once again, I'm Darby Harn, and you can find more information about me and my books at my website, darbyharn.com. I'm also on Twitter at darbyharn. Sugu, how can they find out more about us in the podcast?
0: You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach us at our email address, shelfwarmers at gmail.com. Send us feedback about the show, your thoughts, opinions, recommendations, and insights on our perspectives. We're always happy to hear from you, our audience, and we'd love to share your opinions on our next show. Again, that's shelfwarmers at gmail.com. And if email isn't your thing, we're also on Twitter. You can reach us at shelfwarmers. Give us a holler. We have new episodes every Friday. As always, remember to stay safe, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and get vaccinated when you can. Stick around to listen to a free clip of more content from us. Subscribe today and you can hear the rest of the following and more. Bye-bye.